This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. On-demand CEUs are still available for this presentation through all CEUs. Register at allceus.com slash counselor toolbox. I'd like to welcome everybody to today's presentation on using technology-based tools in behavioral health, best practices for improving access. This is actually based on SAMHSA Treatment Improvement, Improvement Protocol 60, um, SAMHSA Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, for those of you who aren't familiar. Uh, so you can, and a link to it is in the class, you can download the entire tip um, and read it, and, you know, it has a lot of really cool stuff in it if you're into technology-based tools and that sort of thing. Um, this is going to be a high-level overview. There was a whole lot more than I even imagined would be in that tip, uh, so I didn't get quite as much detail in each chapter as I wanted to, but this will give you a good introduction. We're going to explore the benefits and drawbacks to using technology-assisted counseling, learn about some of the different technology tools available, and I really want to encourage you to think as I'm talking and kind of brainstorm ways you can use technology in your practice, whether you're an individual practitioner or you work for an agency, to enhance client success and be more culturally responsive. And some of you may, may be like culturally responsive, um, but we will be talking about the fact that a lot of millennials actually find it um, uncomfortable to be sitting in a face-to-face -face situation and you can argue um, the pros and cons of that but in terms of encouraging treatment compliance and that sort of thing to get them part way there uh, we will look at using technology assisted care in terms of not only its accessibility but in being more culturally responsive to those who grew up texting instead of talking so why use it Mobile devices are becoming universal in our culture. Um, Ten years ago, you never would have made me believe that my mobile device would be an appendage that I couldn't seem to live without. Um, but we have gotten in our culture where we almost demand uh, instant communication. And, I mean, it's things, it's not that I'm necessarily on it all the time, but, for example, when I get in my car to go driving somewhere, I like knowing that I've got my mobile device, so if the car breaks down, I have the ability to call someone. Now, back in the day, you know, I would have walked three blocks to the nearest gas station, and it wouldn't have been a big deal. But it gives me a sense of security now that I've gotten used to and kind of come to rely on a little bit. 
The use of electronic media and information technologies in behavioral health treatment is rapidly gaining acceptance. Um, when you look at the studies, you're finding that there is a lot of support for the fact that technology-assisted care and e-therapy, telemental health, whatever you want to call it, is actually effective. So we want to look at ways that we can use that in order to reach more people for early intervention and prevention services to provide what we're going to call later therapist extenders. Um, if you think of dialectical behavior therapy, how they have the coaching sessions in between, um, some technology-based tools will enable a client to log in and seek help when they're in the middle of an emotional episode so they can get help right there and then and start to learn how to apply the techniques that you talk about in your counseling session. Um, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Technology allows alternative models of care to be offered to clients with specific needs that limit their ability or interest, and hence on interest, in participating in more conventional settings. Privacy. Think about, um, it doesn't matter if you're dealing with depression or anxiety or substance abuse, there are certain people who wouldn't feel comfortable walking into a mental health clinic for whatever reasons. And from a cultural standpoint, it's not accepted or looked upon fondly of reaching out for help. From a, and you can consider it culture as well, from an employment perspective, uh, law enforcement military personnel, certain uh, professions like doctors and lawyers may not want to be associated with seeking help from mental health services. And, you know, we totally believe that mental health services are there to help people who are dealing with difficult times. You know, they're having normal responses to abnormal events yada yada we don't see a problem with it but we also have to respect their perspective that you know coming into a clinic let alone sitting in group may be more than they're willing to do people with add or adhd who have difficulty sitting there for an hour and talking to you or sitting in group for an hour and you know paying attention and staying focused and sitting still can be very difficult so it can accommodate certain needs like that there are a lot of other issues that are not listed here. I'm just giving you some brief examples. People with chronic pain, if they have back issues, I've worked with clients in substance abuse treatment who had back issues. They were detoxing off their opiate medications. Their pain was really bad, so it was difficult for them to get comfortable. Um, if they can find a way in their home where they can be comfortable, maybe they've got special chairs or beds or whatever that they can sit on that are more ergonomically appropriate for them, then they'll be able to focus better because they're pain-free. So if we can provide the services remotely so they can be comfortable and still participate, it saves you from having to try to figure out how to help them get comfortable in your clinic. I know where I've worked before, our group chairs, with the exception of one facility, our group chairs were pretty uncomfortable. Um, they were the old plastic stackables. And after an hour or so, even a person with no pain would start kind of wriggling around. And time. Not everybody has the time. I mean, think about how much time it takes to drive to the clinic, wait for pr the program to start, sit through the program, and then drive home. If they've got children to take care of, they've got, you know, got to tote somebody to soccer, Whatever their time constraints are, they may have less time 
available for treatment and be unwilling or unable to make more time for it. So this helps with time constraints, even if it's live group therapy or live individual therapy, or what we're going to talk about with self-directed computer-based interventions and technology. Um, People who are short on time but still wanting help can start reaching out that way. Technology-assisted care, or TAC, can reach many people otherwise unable to access services. Now, thinking about the population that you deal with, whether it's a geriatric population, um, a cognitively impaired population, substance abuse, rural, you know, where one of the places I, I worked, you know, I was there for 14 years, and we had our county, which was where the University of Florida was, so that wasn't rural. You know, there were a lot of services, public transportation. But we also served 12 other counties. One of those counties, the entire population of that county was less than 5,000. And so getting to services, getting all the way into Alachua County, wasn't something that they were able to do. So how can we provide technology-assisted services? How can we reach out to them so they can benefit from mental health services which brings us to where do we use them in the home we can provide certain services whether it's self-directed services such as logging into a um, computer program that walks them through different activities teaches them cognitive behavioral skills whatever that's one or participating in uh, video chat or even text-based counseling or email-based counseling from their home with the therapist. Community organizations. Okay, maybe we're not doing it to a home. Maybe we set up four computer banks at a place that's secure at the local Boys and Girls Club or the library where people can have some privacy. We don't want it out in the middle of everybody. Um, But it is possible, and I actually have participated in some demonstration grants, where we have set up computer banks where people could come in, log on, and interact with their therapist or their psychiatrist from a an organization, from a repository or whatever you want to call it, a central place in their community. So they didn't have to haul their behind all the way to where the, where our clinic was. Schools. You can provide a lot of prevention, early intervention, Likely, you're not going to provide a whole lot of treatment services um, while the child or youth is at school, but there are a lot of things that they can participate in in terms of learning about wellness, learning about coping skills, um, education about substance abuse and prevention, and there's lots of stuff that we can provide to youth who are already at school um, if the school district, if the school system is willing to allow us to provide, put computers and in the school and have the youth participate. Emergency rooms. You know, a lot of people go to the emergency room um, and they're under a lot of stress. Now, they could have a physical something-something going on, and that I get that. So they need to be at the emergency room. But if you've been in most emergency rooms, you don't get helped right away. So stress levels can go up. Anxiety can go up. There can be screenings for depression, screenings for anxiety. So while the client waits for to see an emergency room physician, they can also be doing screenings for any mental health stuff that might be present 
so they could be referred for services in addition to whatever their presenting complaint was. Same thing is true in healthcare providers' offices. Um, if you go with uh, SBIRT, and I can't think of what that stands for, brief, it's brief intervention, but basically getting physicians to start doing screenings, brief screenings for substance abuse, depression, anxiety during each clinical visit. Well, if while the client is waiting in the waiting room, they can log on and take these assessments so the physician doesn't have to do it, you know, when they're face-to-face, -face. the physician gets the printout, then they can make the recommendations. So it expedites things and makes it more effective. And via mobile devices and online social networks. So sometimes people are going to want to log on. Like I said, they're at work. They go to a meeting. They get out of the meeting. They're really stressed out. They're wigging out. They're decompensating. Um, not to the point where they need emergency intervention, but they know they're feeling excessively stressed. And they can log on to certain websites or use certain tools or apps that they've downloaded on their phone to help them get regrounded, help them use their mindfulness skills. You know, there's a lot of ways you can do it. You can also schedule texts to go out to your clients, or they can schedule texts to go out to themselves to remind them to engage in mindfulness practices um, if they're diabetic. Now, obviously, we're not doctors, so we're not going to be treating diabetes, but if they're having difficulty with treatment compliance, they can set a text reminder to go out to themselves to remind them to check their blood sugar. Um, I use it a lot for doing the mindfulness scans to encourage people to remember to do that. And maybe if we're working on health and wellness stuff, encourage them or remind them to log in and put in their food journal so they can see what they're eating and that sort of stuff. A lot of the apps that collect nutritional data will automatically prompt you if you miss your normal meal time and don't put anything in. Technology-assisted care is often accessible on demand at the user's convenience, reducing barriers to access, including travel and transportation, time, and child care. Child care is another huge one that a lot of our clients really want to participate in treatment, but they can't bring junior, and they don't want to bring junior and leave him in the lobby, and we don't want them to do that either. Um, so if junior is home from sick from school, spring break, teacher work day, Whatever the case may be, and they're strapped for money so they can't afford additional child care, um, you know, if the child's sick, they may not have anybody that they can call for child care. There are a lot of reasons that people may not be able to attend a face-to-face -face appointment in a clinic. So if we look at ways we can accommodate them, you know, maybe you don't typically do video chat as your, as your um, modality of choice with your client. However, Maybe you maintain that as an option if for some reason they can't attend a treatment session. That way they don't have to miss, but um, they're, they're able to meet their other demands. If you do like total telemental health where you don't have to have an office and a physical structure, sometimes clinicians pass that reduced cost onto the client. Now there is cost go that's associated with the telemental health services providing encrypted chat and setting up your website and all that stuff. So there are costs associated, but a lot of times they're a lot less than having a brick-and-mortar office. 
Technology-assisted care also refers to anything that helps facilitate coordination of services and care management between providers. So you can log on to a secure chat and have a case meeting without the doc having to come all the way in or people having to meet in one place, which you lose bill billable hours when you got to travel. Um, you can do that. You can also share, you know, if the health record is an electronic health record, you might be able to share portions of that as appropriate by HIPAA and high tech and all that other stuff. Do remember that millennials grew up communicating through chat and are most comfortable with those modalities. A lot of youth don't reach out for services, partly because um, they don't feel comfortable going to counseling. There's a lot of stigma associated with it, and it's not a mode of communication that they are um, necessarily used to using. So it's important um, to consider if you work in large part with millennials um, or youth or people who prefer online counseling um, to consider having that available. Several studies underscore the acceptability and appeal to use of computer-delivered interventions. That doesn't necessarily just mean the secure video chat. That can mean um, self-directed interventions. There are significant barriers to adolescents' participation in addiction treatment, which can be addressed by internet-based addiction services. Um, addiction treatment often meets, and the reason that it's singled out versus others, um, addiction treatment often meets multiple days a week, which if junior isn't driving it, then you have to rely on parental unit to get them to and from treatment. Um, they may have other things going on. They may not be comfortable in a face-to-face -face group setting, so they may resist going to group. There are a lot of reasons that you might want to look at considering it. And notice I keep hedging because it's going to be up to what is comfortable for you and what you feel is ethically appropriate and what you can manage to set up te technologically. Um, because there is, as I said, an expense with getting set up with a HIPAA-compliant system. Many youths report interactive computer learning environments preferable to, tra to traditional learning environments. So do remember that a lot of youth now are doing school, middle school, high school, even elementary school, online. Um, K-12 is was kind of behind the whole expansion into online public schools. But there are a lot of youth who've never sat in a classroom with 30 other students. Um, they like computer-based learning because it allows them to solve problems actively and independently and receive individualized feedback when they're ready, instead of feeling like there's pressure on them or instead of feeling like they've got to get caught up, they can kind of do it at their own pace. Another population that technology-assisted care is really useful for is the elderly and aging, both for health promotion and to address cognitive difficulties. Computerized tools designed to enhance cognitive skills through exercises that target problem-solving, attention, memory, and abstract reasoning have been shown to have promise in populations with severe mental illness as well as among individuals with substance use disorders. So for encouraging people to um, 
engage in activities, basically do mental exercise. It can help. It's not going to reverse everything and it's not going to solve everything. But there is a lot of research that if people can keep their brain active, um, it can slow some of the cognitive decline. Another reason to use it, it meets the needs of the adult learner. It can be portioned out. Most adults have about a 10-minute attention span. Um, and I know you're in here for an hour, so you're going, but, well, yeah, we got to do an hour for CEUs in order to make it count. But technically, the research says that the adult learner typically has an attention span of 10 to 11 minutes, and then they start wandering, and they come back. Um, but technology-assisted care can allow people to chunk what they're learning and really process it and digest it in a way that's meaningful for them. You can use it to provide comprehensive services, like I said earlier, clinician extenders. Um, patients can participate in online moderated forums and groups, and all patients can access a web or app-based exercise activities and videos outside of session. So if maybe you're teaching DBT skills, and you have your skills group, and the client comes, and it's wonderful, yay. They leave. The next day that they're struggling, excuse me for a minute, the next day they're struggling with some emotional turmoil, and they want to review what you went over, the skill you went over in group, and they can go to your website, watch your video on um, radical acceptance or mindfulness to refresh what they learned the day before, it enables them to sort of touch base with the clinician. Now, this is, they don't have any expectation that you're going to respond to them. This is them reaching out for a reliable resource that they can get something from. In moderated forums and groups, they may not be moderated by you. Um, I'm trying to think. There are several online. In the Rooms is one, and Dr. John Grohall has another one that is uh, really popular. I can't think of the name of it right now. It's for, more for mental health. Um, they moderate, and they have moderators uh, that moderate the different group chats. You can see where there, and, and forum discussions, you can see where there might be some problems here. Um, but we're going to talk about those when we get to downsides. Having clinician extenders available may encourage clients to reach out more often. If they're, you know, struggling, and I'm not saying in, in the midst of a super bad crisis, um, the, uh, but I am talking about when they're struggling. They wake up, they can't get back to sleep, they, they get, start getting frustrated. Well, then is the time, if they can reach out and watch a video they may be able to calm themselves down and get regrounded as opposed to spiraling until 6.30 or 8 o'clock in the morning when the answer, answering service can kind of get to them. Many online support forums are free and maintained by someone else. Now, if you think of it in terms of, you know, the typical brick-and-mortar clients that you see, a lot of us probably also refer those clients to support groups in the community. Same sort of thing. You know, we're not controlling what happens in those support groups. We have done our due diligence. We know that, or, or we are thinking, that it is a very good, helpful group. But we're not involved with it. We are saying this is a resource that you may want to check out. Same thing is true for um, support group meetings and uh, online forums that are moderated by someone else. We're not controlling what happens there. So, you know, it may make you feel a little loosey-goosey, 
by the same token we're also not saying or dictating that the client has to go there we're providing it as a resource option so the downside you know there are a lot of really positives to technology assisted care but it lacks the nonverbals even in video chat if you are on even two-way video chat and one person doesn't have a super high-speed connection the there may be a delay in um, getting to the point of you know being able to understand what's going on there may be a delay in matching the verbal you know you see their lips moving and then you hear the sound later or vice versa that freaks me out whenever I see that but you don't get all the nonverbals even in video chat so if nonverbals are particularly important especially in the culture of your client technology assisted care might not be the thing um, and we're going to talk about the differences in let's see today's Tuesday in next Tuesday's lecture we're going to talk about the differences in high context communication cultures versus low context communication cultures but certain cultures you get a whole lot more of an understanding of what they're saying from their nonverbals than from what they say so if you're just listening to their words like on the telephone or if you're not getting that sync between verbals and nonverbals you may miss a whole lot there's a lack of immediate feedback when stuff is done asynchronously such as through forums email I know a lot of uh, people have started to try to do email therapy um, if you've got a client that's doing that and they're in crisis and they send you an email and they say I'm in crisis and you don't check that email for eight hours there can be a problem um, the client also may not get immediate feedback if they're struggling you know they're not in peril but they are struggling you may miss a window of opportunity because they're hoping you're going to check the email so there can be a lot of hurt feelings feelings of rejection feelings of being ignored that need to be addressed we'll talk about this later in the class in the informed consent asynchronous interaction needs to be addressed in patient responsibilities and regularly reviewed for appropriateness if you've got a client who's decompensating or who regularly makes veiled or overt threats in their texts or their emails um, then the asynchronous interaction or in forum posts or chat room groups then these types of technologies may not be appropriate additionally and I hadn't thought about this but clients who don't type well may find text-based interventions frustrating now my old boss was I mean he's a brilliant man but to this day he is like a hunt and peck typer on the keyboard and when it comes to his mobile device you might as well hang it up he's not going to respond or if he does it's two words um, and it wasn't because he was trying to be dismissive it's because he had such a hard time typing and I mean he was a very big guy he's like six four and a half or something um, so you know typing on this little tiny keyboard and getting the letters right was really frustrating for him when you have a client who's already stressed out depressed anxious and they start having a hard time actually typing their message that can exacerbate their condition non video based methods of providing services can create legal and ethical issues when there's no ability to verify who the clinician is speaking to now obviously if you're doing 
live face-to-face video chat, that's one thing. You can look at it and go, yeah, that's Jim Bob. But if you are doing telephone counseling or you're doing online chat or something where you can't verify the person you're talking to is who it is, you run into some potential ethical issues. You secure logins, so they have to log into a website using a username and password that also where your, your system also records their IP address. That's an extra way of verifying on the back end. But I also have my clients use a secret phrase whenever we start talking, and that phrase changes periodically. That way I know that the person who logged in is actually the person who I think it is. Um, it doesn't prohibit the client from sharing that information with someone else. This is especially true with um, involuntary clients who may not want to come to treatment, so they get somebody else to do it for them. Problem. Billability, and that's not a word, but it is now. Some insurance will not reimburse, and I spent about three hours looking for something that's current on that identifies which insurance companies will accept and which insurance companies will not accept telehealth services. I was not successful. In the document that's in your class, you obviously have these links here. In 2013, under Medicaid, and Medicaid and Medicare actually seem to lead the charge with acceptance of telemental health, 39 states cover telehealth services, and they actually have specific CPT code modifiers for online telemental health services. They did cover individual psychotherapy, individual and group for assessment and intervention, and smoking cessation. Um, And that was 2013, so that was four years ago. Another article, I found 19 states mandate some some form of reimbursement for telehealth services, including from private insurers. So they may not reimburse at the same rate, or they may only reimburse for certain services like video, but there are some states that require it. Most providers will only reimburse for interactive video-based counseling. So if you have your client and you do a two-hour text chat, you know, SMS chat, you're not going to get reimbursed for that. Um, If you do a 15-minute consultation and it's not interactive video, likely not going to get paid for that. So you need to talk to your provider ahead of time or the insurance provider ahead of time and ask them, what is it that you cover? And that's the easiest most fail-safe way to do it since each insurance provider can differ. Blue Cross and Blue Shield in Tennessee may accept something that Blue Cross and Blue Shield in Florida does not. It's best to just call and ask and get it from the horse's mouth. I did link to the psychotherapy coding clarifications and code modifiers. If you're billing um, for yourself, if you have a billing agency, they should already be very familiar with the modifiers they need to put for telemental health. HIPAA and high-tech compliance regulations, including maintaining signed business associate agreements, can be really cumbersome. Um, So if you're using a lot of different services, it's important just to be aware what the regulations are. Honestly, I think it's best to pay a consultant to just help you get set up or get set up with something like um, VC that already has, and that's V-S-E-E. I know they already have a telemental health and a telehealth suite set up that is compliant and they will sign a business associate agreement. Skype, 
is not compliant. Gmail is not compliant. And Second Life, please, Second Life is not compliant. Um, none of these, to the best of my knowledge, with the normal accounts, will sign a business associate agreement with you anyway. Even if you have a home office, you have to maintain HIPAA and high-tech security protocols. So it's important to set things up appropriately. If you're planning on getting rid of a brick-and-mortar office, there are going to be some expenses around setting up a compliant uh, home office setting that also has enough high-speed internet to support video chat. Just kind of an FYI, deducting the cost of a home office from taxes has historically been considered an audit flag. And I did link to the website um, from Investopedia that tells you all about that. The same is not true for virtual services provided from a freestanding business office. So just be aware. I'm sure your um, tax guy can help you figure out how to do it where it's safe and you don't increase your audit risk. But so how to uh, use technology-assisted care. Email. That's one. Obviously, it can be very asynchronous. If you're emailing with clients, you probably want to have time parameters set. So you, ch you tell them, you make a promise or whatever you want to say, to check your email so many times a day. Or, you know, if they email, email you and they don't hear back within 24 hours or 48 hours, um, to give you a call just to make sure that you got the email sometimes they get lost um, but if you're using a hipaa compliant system a lot of that should go away smart that smartphone and tablet applications or just your general apps that help people learn cognitive behavioral therapy um, dialectical behavior therapy wellness tools those can all be really useful they don't necessarily have to be apps that you've created if you find an app online that you really like and you think is useful um, you may suggest it to your clients as something that they can use in between sessions and that you can use as an adjunct to therapy online forums and targeted social networking sites now targeted social networking refers to not not facebook that you know everybody can join but we're talking about you know in the rooms for example where the people who go to that social networking site are all in substance abuse recovery there are targeted social networking sites for a variety of different issues and causes informational websites and blogs know which ones that you've looked at you've kind of proofed ahead of time that you can refer your clients to um, there's a dbt skills dot com i believe is one that i refer a lot of people to that take the dbt classes because she uh, the person who moderates the site has a lot of really good useful tools that are there there's no sense me reinventing the wheel and try to put trying to put a bunch of new stuff up there because what she has is very useful you can however make your website an inter informational website or blog that walks people through different techniques and different steps that you think are important video and telephone chat are the obvious go-to's virtual reality or immersion therapy has been used a lot in the VA to deal with PTSD um, it's been used some um, in clinical trials especially to help people deal with phobias and fears 
There is some utility for this, but it's one that I would really strongly caution you um, to make sure that you've got adequate training in handling it. If you're using the VR in your office, it's different than using having the client use VR at their home and potentially decompensating. Um, so you do want to take into consideration how much control you have over it and make sure that the virtual reality system you're using is HIPAA compliant. Virtual art therapy. This one was really cool. I've just got to show you. Because um, I know some people really like doing art therapy with clients. I am not artistic at all, so I always look for good resources. And uh, the National Gallery of Art has a lot of different online activities where youth can go through and, well, anybody can go through and create sort of an art therapy project. Obviously, this is not HIPAA compliant, so we don't want them putting all kinds of you know, personal stuff in it. But a lot of times, art therapy just helps them express themselves creatively. Um, make sure that if you use something like this, you inform them, even though it seems obvious, inform them that it's not secure, confidential, and HIPAA compliant because it is through the National Gallery of Art, not your clinical website. Pinterest, if it loads, has a whole bunch of sites that you can use for virtual art therapy. So if you've got clients who have an affinity for that, you might even encourage them to go through this Pinterest board and find things that seem to fit for them. Okay. Several studies have demonstrated the feasibility, acceptability, and efficacy of using telephone-based counseling interventions targeting substance abuse among youth. Clients can participate in counseling sessions more if they're offered in a distance telehealth environment as an alternative or as an adjunct to in-person settings. I really covered this a lot already, but if you've got a client base, adolescent or, you know, not really interested in coming to face-to-face -face settings for privacy reasons, time reasons, whatever their reasons, or maybe they're out geographically in a location where it's just not possible for them to get to your office you know, once a week, then telephone and video is something that you might consider. Obviously, with telephone, you lose all nonverbals. Um, Self-directed web-based and computer-based therapeutic tools may have utility in specific settings where internet access is limited, such as jails, other criminal justice settings, and in certain residential treatment programs. So if clients have access so they can keep a emotions diary or a feelings log or they have an app on there that reminds them every four hours to do a mindfulness scan and they're able to carry that around with them in whatever facility they're in, that can be helpful. Or, again, if there's a computer bank somewhere where the clients can go access it. If you've worked within a criminal justice setting, especially a jail, you know that them getting out and having internet connection to do interactive anything with a therapist is going to be almost impossible. So we need to look at things that can be installed on the computers at the facility that will provide um, computerized feedback to the clients. Web-based, self-directed therapeutic tools offer a number of advantages, including the ability to update centrally and deploy content within a given program as needed. Um, on my website, DocSnipes.com, as I create new lessons, 
um, if you will. I upload the videos, I upload the worksheets, and I upload the sheet that has sort of a therapist guide if you're going to try to cover this in group. And as I create new content, I upload it, and anybody who accesses the website can access that. So the self-directed tools, you know, having it even on a website is really helpful. If you have it on an app or on a computer that's, and it doesn't require internet access, then every time that app updates, whenever it logs on and actually updates itself, you can deploy new information. <clears throat> you can also track user activity within the program over time via unique login information. So if you want to see if client Sam Jones signed in and participated or which clients were high utilizers, you can do that. And you can aggregate user activity data across client groups. So looking and saying, you know, my adolescent population seems to really respond to this, whereas, you know, these other people seem to respond to this. So you can tailor and target your clients a little bit better. They can be used for assessment and behavioral health services provision for things like diabetes, eating disorders, substance use disorder prevention, HIV and AIDS prevention, and methadone maintenance treatment. And we're talking about the social skills and the life skills classes that many, um, many methadone clinics are required to provide. Obviously, they're not administering methadone uh, through an app. The assessments we're talking about, and a lot of times screening would probably be a more appropriate term because most clients are not going to do an in-depth assessment on the internet, although I've seen it done. Um, thinking about taking the uh, um, MBTI, for example. I mean, that's a full assessment. The Beck Depression Inventory, that's technically an assessment, not just a screening. So you can look for certain things that clients can do online that you can access and see where they're at or facilitate the diagnostic process. Literature reviews underscore the effectiveness of these interventions in producing health behavior change. So if people can log on to a self-directed site, and we've all come across them, that say, you know, take this quiz to see if you've got depression or take this quiz to see if you're gluten intolerant. People log on, they take the quiz, they get results, it provides them theoretically objective feedback, and it gives them information on how to improve their health and quality of life. And they found that people really respond to this. They don't need another human on the other end explaining to them why it's important. They just read why it was important. So these can be helpful in terms of prevention. If you're working in a capitated system, so for example, you get $3 million to your agency every year to provide all necessary mental health counseling services to any Medicaid enrollee in your area, you know, so you've got to judiciously use your, your funding. These can be helpful because they can prevent some people from getting to the point where they need to be high utilizers of, like, face-to-face -face services. Comparison of computer-delivered interventions with person-delivered interventions generally report comparable outcomes. <clears throat> Now, obviously, we're talking about similar things, prevention, early intervention. If you've got somebody who's in the throes of a crisis, um, probably not going to be comparable. Um, the literature in the, in the tip was a little unclear on exactly what they were looking at. But my guess would be they're looking at 
prevention and early intervention and educational services because we all need to help clients get the knowledge of what they need to do in order to address their depression and they have to get the knowledge of what caused their particular symptoms or, or, or problem. Computerized treatments for mental disorders have been most widely developed and extensively used for anxiety, traumatic stress, and depressive disorders. Um, they implement techniques such as cognitive restructuring, relaxation training, and systematic desensitization. Oh, some of the new generation fitness watches um, actually will monitor your health, your heart rate to detect levels of increasing stress. And if it shows according to their logarithm, that you have been under stress, it will automatically prompt you to participate in a guided breathing activity or guided imagery. Um, so I thought that was kind of neat, although I think it would also be kind of annoying sometimes. So I'm not sure how I would feel about it, but it's an interesting concept. There is an interactive web-based intervention called the Therapeutic Education System, which delivers CBT for individuals with substance use disorders and may be effective as traditional counseling. Let's see if I can get that bad boy to come up. Let's see. Okay, this just takes you to the, to the actual article that talks about it. Um, chat rooms typically refer to open rooms online in which in, individuals come and go as they wish and can communicate synchronously with any or all participants in the chat room. I think we've all been in chat rooms, so you know what they are. Many of the behavioral health chat rooms are moderated by a clinician who posts comments, guides discussions, and may screen comments before allowing people to post. So, you know, when I moderate a chat room that may be mental health oriented or may go down that road, um, depending on how well I know the people in the group, I mean, if they're all patients, it's one thing. If it's a general chat room, I may want to reserve the right to preview comments before I allow anything to be posted just to prevent flaming and all kinds of other nastiness. Whether chat rooms are overseen by clinicians or by peers, they typically include guidelines for participation with designated monitors who do monitor the content and will talk to people in private messages or offline um, if they become inappropriate. Online support forums are typically organized in a bulletin board format that allows users to post anonymous text-based communications. You have your handle, but you can make your handle whatever you want. You don't have to use your actual name. Um, they, online support groups enable asynchronous communication, as do email lists. Now, this website I thought was really cool. Um, it's called Patients Like Me, and people can log on and find other people who share uh, similar issues such as depression and learn about what they've used what the people on the website have used to address their depression and explore different approaches and interventions um, it's worth going and just joining now it's free you don't have to do all kinds of um, personal information or profile setup or anything you can just get in and poke around a little bit and you can find that it can be really supportive let's see let's just go to diabetes type 1 because that's where I'm at so as far as symptoms of diabetes type 1 the fatigue what people are taking for it um, or to help them handle it parking permits 
um, that's medication. Some people need a wheelchair in order to handle the excessive fatigue. So it gives people ideas of accommodations they may be able to ask for. Um, it isn't an interactive board that I've found where people talk to one another. You're just looking at other people's, what they've done. So basically their journal entries, if you will, about what has worked and what hasn't worked for them. Email and text chat. Email can be used for routine contacts, such as setting appointments, following up on counseling sessions. Hey, we had a great session yesterday. I just wanted to remind you to keep your anger journal. Um, you can also send motivational messages encouraging clients to engage in specific therapeutic activities between sessions and or actually conduct some portion of counseling. Um, I'm working with a client right now on some grief issues, and I asked her to write a letter to the person that she lost. Technically, just where she's at emotionally, um, I could have had her submit that via secure email um, so I could read it before she got into session. I didn't choose to do that in this particular case. Obviously, if you're going to use email, you need to make sure it's not going to cause the client to decompensate. Chat counseling in chat rooms or via instant messaging typically require more abbreviated interactions but are more real-time. Services provided via mobile devices offer the opportunity to provide in-the-moment interventions, which can be really impactful. One-sided text messages um, from provider to consumer have shown considerable usefulness in prov promoting treatment compliance, such as self-monitoring of health behaviors, like healthy eating, exercise, that sort of stuff. PTSD Coach is an app created by the VA's National Center for PTSD and helps users learn about and manage symptoms that commonly occur after a trauma. It provides education, screening tools, easy-to-use skills that clients can use to help handle stressful symptoms, direct links to support and help, and continuous accessibility. So clients, if they're having a uh, night terror, can log on at 3 in the morning, not just, you know, during office hours. A search for virtual reality in the clinical trials search engines indicated that there were about 190 clinical trials in May of 2014 for using virtual reality in counseling. And they used them for a whole host of different issues. Um, I would encourage you just to go to clinicaltrials.gov and look around and see what new ways people are trying to use technology in behavioral health. Online social networks can be problematic due to their general lack of HIPAA compliance. If you've ever been in a Facebook group for depression, anxiety, grief and loss, whatever it is, you know they're not HIPAA compliant. So it can be problematic. You can have people who troll, which is, you know, they're just there to say nasty oppositional things um, and clients may post a little bit too much private information in public forums and then regret it later or you know find out that they probably shouldn't have done that for whatever reason but there's no way to take it back the use of technology and therapy may be contraindicated for individuals experiencing significant emotional distress or complex situations such as domestic violence. And, you know, my thought was, well, yeah, um, use good ethical judgment. All of your communications need to comply with HIPAA, high tech, and if you do any substance abuse treatment, CFR 42 Part 2, 
and some state laws, which is, again, why I say it's best just to have a consultant look at your protocol, if not set up the whole thing. Text transcripts can be subpoenaed from providers or internet service providers, because right now they're still not considered psychotherapy notes. So another argument for not doing a whole session in text. Um, if you do it where it's encrypted point to point, um, then they can sub subpoena the log, but they're not going to get anything without having the encryption key. HealthIT.gov offers a number of resources for healthcare providers related to using mobile devices in a way that helps protect and secure client health information. So if you're thinking about using it, it's a great resource. It's written in layman's language. Essential elements of informed consent. And I'm going to go through this really fast. There is a whole bunch more information in the, um, in the tip, but it's, I'm going to kind of hit the highlights. Make sure that you, clients know the service process and alternatives, whether the communication is going to be you know, at the same time or asynchronous. What are the response standards and scheduling? So, you know, what kind of lag can they expect? How often are you going to interact? If you're doing email counseling with somebody, are you supposed to email once a week? Or what happens if they e start emailing you three times a day? How is that going to be handled? Misunderstandings. You need to talk about the risks with text and video-based counseling. Um, for misunderstandings of nonverbals as well as verbals. We all know how easy it is to misunderstand a text message or accidentally type in all caps. Alternative treatments to delivery approaches. So if they don't like virtual technology-assisted care, what are alternatives that they can explore? Who's going to have access to their clinical information? And this includes technical staff who is going to have access to their IP address, and depending on how your system's set up, may or may not have access to chat logs. The potential benefits of the technology-assisted service, what the confidentiality of the records is going to look like, what privacy risks exist, because there are some. There are even technology or privacy risks if you're just doing a standard old phone call. So make sure they know what the risks are. Inform them of ways to protect their privacy, including erasing cookies on their computer when they're finished with a computer session. Um, the roles and credentials of all individuals involved in the service delivery, if it's not just you. So if there's a moderator in a chat room that you facilitate um, that's not you, what's that person's credentials? What are emergency procedures if the client starts to decompensate? And if for some reason the power goes out and you can't make that virtual connection, what do you do? How are, our char how are charges and payments handled? How do you handle service disruptions if the internet goes out in the middle of a session? Heaven forbid, but it's happened to me. So you have to have a plan um, ahead of time so the client knows what's going to happen and they don't feel like, oh my gosh, I was right in the middle of a moment. And what regulatory agencies supervise telehealth care and where can they file grievances, such as with the Department of Health and Human Services for perceived HIPAA violations? Telemental health is here to stay. Many self-directed programs are extremely useful for all ages and a multitude of diagnoses, especially for prevention and early intervention. Um, provide that information, get them started um, enhancing their current coping skills and their processes.
The use of virtual technologies enables a clinician to individualize treatment to increase compliance, accessibility, and effectiveness. There are many ethical, regulatory, and legal issues surrounding the use of electronic devices in any aspect of counseling. So make sure that you run it past your attorney and preferably a very competent HIPAA high-tech person. Um, there are so many ways you can use technology, and, and I, as I kept saying, it doesn't have to be just stuff you came up with. It can be resources. Let me see if I can find um, that other website I was telling you about. And if you need to get on to your next client, you can feel free to log off and, um, you know, my feelings won't be hurt. Uh, but if you want to stick around for a minute, I'm going to try to get you to this other website that's a good example of a mental health Psych Central. I don't know why I couldn't remember that. He is actually one of the thought leaders in providing online screening and technology-assisted um, care. There are tons of links in the presentation as well as in the um, tip by SAMHSA, so feel free to download that. It's free, and you can look at some of these other resources. I just didn't have enough time in the hour to cover everything possible, but it is so exciting the different things we can do to make sure that our clients feel like they always have resources and always have support that's going to help them. And they're not just going on the internet going, well, let me see if I can find something. Okay, if nobody has any questions, again, you can go log in, take your, take your quiz and, and be off on, on your merry way, seeing your next client and all that happy stuff. Otherwise, I will stick around for a couple more minutes because um, I know I skimmed over a whole lot of stuff. And in response to a couple of the questions that came in, and I think I answered them um, in, a, in a way that you, you know, I segued it in in a way that was meaningful. But I, everything that's technology-assisted care needs to comply with HIPAA and high-tech if you're handling any sort of PHI. Now, if you're just referring somebody to, like, dbtskills.com, you know, that's not going to be PHI. So it, it's a little bit different. Um, but you do need to make sure that anything that's going to have confidential information has all the extra walls and protections. And for those of you who are still here, I will try to find it um, this afternoon and put it in the additional resources for your course. I found an excellent handbook on learning how to read nonverbals uh, that I've encouraged a lot of my um, clients who are more comfortable with technology to take a look at so they're more familiar with, you know, how to read people's body language in a face-to-face -face setting. If you enjoy this podcast, please like and subscribe either in your podcast player or on YouTube. You can attend and participate in our live webinars with Dr. Snipes by subscribing at allceus.com slash counselor toolbox. This episode has been brought to you in part by allceus.com, providing 24-7 multimedia continuing education and pre-certification training to counselors, therapists, and nurses since 2006. Use coupon code Counselor Toolbox to get a 20% discount off your order this month.